Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Earlier this week, a jury in New York found well-known R&B artist R. Kelly guilty on nine counts, including racketeering and sex trafficking. Now, before I go any further, I want to give a content warning that today's show may be triggering or difficult for survivors of sexual assault or abuse. The news about R. Kelly marks a really seismic and deeply meaningful shift in what accountability looks like for famous and powerful sexual predators. And more specifically, in the black community, it's signaling that the voices and experiences of black women actually matter, that their voices are being heard. That's where we're going to spend the hour today, examining and discussing the aftermath of this verdict. And I want to hear from you. What do you make of R. Kelly's conviction? And what do you think about the issue of his musical legacy? Can or should we be able to separate the art from the artist in this case or in many, many others? And what does this verdict mean, not just for Kelly, but for the survivors of his abuse? I'm joined now by someone who has been navigating the complex world of R. Kelly for quite some time. Dream Hampton is a filmmaker, an activist, and a writer who was the showrunner and executive producer of the riveting and really powerful docuseries Surviving R. Kelly, which premiered on Lifetime back in January of 2019. And I think it's fair to say that without this important work, I'm not sure the pressure on prosecutors and investigators might have gotten to the point where they felt like they had to act as meaningfully as they did. Dream Hampton, welcome back to Detroit Today. Are you there, Dream? Okay, I think we're having a little problem with Dream's connection. Uh, while we wait to sort out that technical difficulty, uh, let's get going on the phones. I'm really curious about what you, the listeners, are taking away from this week and the conviction of R. Kelly on these counts. The sentence he faces is incredible. I mean, many, many, many years in prison for many counts that he has been uh, convicted on. Uh, is that the right outcome? I've seen a lot of talk on social media about whether the verdict that's likely or the sentence that's likely coming for R. Kelly is a just one, whether the history that he might have had with sexual abuse and a predator might need to be factored in to the ideas of what his punishment should be. I've also, I've also seen a lot of people talking about how you prevent this kind of thing in the future. What do you do to make sure that people like R. Kelly don't get created? And I think it's really important to think of it that way. He wasn't born as a predator. Something made him into this. Also, how do we deal with stars, famous people who are involved in this level of awful conduct? R. Kelly's not the first, and he won't be the last. 
what is it that we what is it that we do when artists, people who create music or art or are writers or uh, painters, uh, what do we do when they commit these awful crimes? What do we do with the art that they have created for us? And then often they leave behind. Do we have to leave them behind? Do we have to X them out of our culture? Give us a call and let us know how you're processing all of these things. What are you thinking about R. Kelly? What are you thinking about uh, what are you thinking about his conviction? What are you thinking about his potential sentence? And what are you thinking about these broader issues that exist in our culture? The way in which people are believed or not believed when they speak up about sexual abuse or a predator. The way the response is when something like this happens. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's, while we're still trying to work out the technical difficulties here, let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. So one of my what one of my um, personal opinions is I think this is uh, very separate because of race. If you look at pre- former President Trump, it's on his ag- accusations that's been going on for the last forty years, and then you look at the congressman from um, the congressman from Florida and some of his major out- accusations that we actually have proof of. A lot of it, a lot of it has been um, only stifled to African Americans, and we can even look at that when we look at Bill Cosby. And and Chris, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talking about that as well, that there is a double standard, that the double standards that play out uh, in the rest of our society play out in the context of this kind of thing as well, that, that he's being sort of singled out. But I, I wonder, Chris, yeah, go ahead. It's demonizing the African-American man as the demon. When we have people that have done the same type of um, the same type of crimes, it's just demonizing the African American man as, as a demon. I don't get it. Yeah. So, Chris, I, 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 before I let you go, I want to ask you about w- how you think we should be responding to R. Kelly. Uh, does what you're saying in your mind mean that we ought to we ought to think differently about what he did or about the sentence he might get, or about his his conviction. Honestly, I think I, I honestly think that we should renew, renegotiate the way we look at sexual trauma and sexual law. And the reason why is because is because many times we over we over, we over penalize sexual trauma and sexual law, i.e. Uh, the what is it the Jack and Jill law. Or when we're looking at different things, honestly, we need to re- renegotiate and redetermine how we, as a, as a nation, on how we deal with sexual trauma. Because, because just, sitting, just sentencing somebody to jail yeah. doesn't always, doesn't always um, take, doesn't always just take over the rights. We really need to realize what we're doing and how we're doing it. Because mm. even if we do know him as a pedophile, a pedophile is a, is a mental disease. Mm. How do we? How do we now? How do we now treat him? 
Because honestly, we can say the same thing for for Woody Allen. Boy, that's a it's a really that's a really uh, it's a really complicated question you're raising there, which is how do you respond when somebody uh, does this? Chris, I really appreciate the call and your really thoughtful take uh, on all of these things. Uh, we do have uh, Dream Hampton with us now. We've worked out the technical difficulties. Dream, welcome back to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. So. I, I first want to just talk with you a little about what's happened this week and your response to all of it. This has been a really long journey for you. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, I, I would imagine, quite emotional response to uh, the work that you've done. And you've had to push really hard, I think, to, to keep going in the same direction and never have wavered really uh, in your uh, your conviction that this was something that needed to be dealt with. Um, what's your reaction now that there is a conviction for R. Kelly? Like your last caller, Chris, um, I feel a lot of different ways, mm. you know. We didn't set out to do this project thinking that there would be a trial, that there would be charges. There had already been a trial. There had already been charges, and he'd been acquitted. One of the things that Chris didn't mention is, you know, the women, Mm -hmm. the the well, now we know there were boys also, the people who have survived him, his victims, you know. Um, What are we going to do to support them? Because R. Kelly has had opportunity after opportunity, not only R. Kelly, but R. Kelly's um, people that were close to R. Kelly, um, people that were being paid by R. Kelly, people that were paying R. Kelly, people who were fans of R. Kelly, other men in the community had so many opportunities. It was 2002 when a video of him (sighs) abusing, I know this show airs in the morning as Mm -hmm. well as the evening. So, and there's very violent language when it comes to um, the kinds of crimes that he committed. Um, But the video of him abusing a 14-year-old went viral in the streets in 2002, Mm -hmm. which is almost 20 years ago. And I'm old enough to not be willing to have a conversation about R. Kelly's innocence. Um, I do know that prison isn't the place where one, say, heals or restores or rehabilitates themselves. I know we have this shining example and. Detroit's own Malcolm X, I still claim Malcolm, (laughs) um, of rehabilitation happening in prison. But that's not usually what happens in prison. What usually happens in prison is more abuse. It's an abusive system. So I I understand the last caller. Um, At the same time, when have any of his peers, you know, held him to any account? Mm. Mm. And I mean the men in his community in Chicago. He kept himself very isolated. He didn't live in New York or Los Angeles. He lived in Chicago. Um, I mean, again, all of these fans, R. Kelly, you and I talked about this the last time we talked about R. Kelly when the charges first came down. R. Kelly is that rare R&B artist who had male fans. Yes. You know, he came out when hip-hop was the only genre <laughs> and was the the one R&B artist who, like, you know, had as many male fans as women. Um, and so I do think about peer accountability. I, I think about, we could take R. Kelly out of it. You know, I think about what it looks like um, when you know your boy is pulling up at 25, 23, 28 to MLK High School 
you know, mm. um, sitting up out on Larnard or Lafayette waiting for the girls, some girl that he's messing with to come out. Um, so there are all kinds of ways that we can hold people accountable. And I wish that I trusted community um, to protect girls um, and boys again. You know, um, R. Kelly abused people along the gender spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. So I also want to go back and remind our listeners of what it was that made you feel compelled to, to do this work. Uh, as you point out, you guys started out on this project with this story kind of in the rearview mirror. I think most people thought it was over. So what was it about uh, the subject matter? What was it about the issue that may you say this story isn't over and it can't be over? Well, because there continues to be new victims and escalating and more egregious behavior. By the time Jim Derrigatis is reporting in 2018 about a whole new generation of girls, you know, Joycelyn Savage, who still hasn't gone home to her mother, and Azrael Clary, who both came on Gail King's show to defend him while he was in the room uh, with a script that his team had written for them. Um, when that, those two girls, those two young women, their parents are five and 10 years younger than R. Kelly. Mm. So what we saw after 08, according to Jim DeRogaz's reporting in BuzzFeed and The New Yorker, um, according to all the work that we did when we were making Surviving R. Kelly in 2018. And then the same things were testified to under oath in open court over the past five months. His behavior, his abuse just escalated. He found he had actually a more sophisticated operation than he did all of those years before. In that he was coercing the New York Times, you know, reported from the courtroom, mm -hmm. something that we reported in our documentary, which was that he would coerce women to write false confessions because he get, got caught up in the legal system. That didn't make him say, oh, my God, I'm sick. I'm, gonna, I'm a victim of abuse. Um, I never sought the healing, even though I had all these resources. I never went and sought the healing myself. I'm about to, like, seek help whether that's with my pastor or therapist, he didn't do those things. What he started doing was being like, wow, I got caught up. I'm going to make sure that my videotapes, there are thousands of them, are always locked up. I'm going to make sure that I write, get these girls to write false confessions, um, admitting to, in writing to crimes that they never committed so mm -hmm. that should they ever press charges against me, I'll have this as blackmail against them. So... You know, he, he was someone who was hyper aware, not only of what he was doing, but of how to do it. And so that is a big part of what the story was for me. I, like, like I said, no, I didn't expect there to be charges because he had outwitted the system in 08. You know, those charges came down in 2002. And he was able, through his uh, attorneys, to delay that first trial for six years so that if the 14-year-old should appear on the stand, she would be 20 mm. and not 14, mm. right? That was his first kind of like, and it, well, his, actually his first strategy was to keep her close to him, which he did. He paid off her parents. Sparkle has talked about this on camera with us. You know, Sparkle is someone I was thinking about. I didn't, I came to this project. Let me finish that sentence. He paid off the 14 year old girl's parents um, who were Sparkle's family and she didn't talk to them for a decade. And he kept that girl close to her. 
Um, you know, he had a 14-year-old thinking that she was in love and in a relationship with a 30-something-year-old man. Yeah. That's not an uncommon story. The, the, the ubiquitous nature of, of this story, I think, is something that I see a lot of people arguing about right now on social media. There are a lot of people saying that, uh, you know, in our community, it is tougher to hold people account for this. It is too common uh, among young males uh, and some older males, as you, as you pointed out. Um, can you talk about the reaction that you have gotten to your work and to the vigilance that you've shown in insisting that this is something that needed to be dealt with by the authorities. I, I know it hasn't been easy. Yeah. Well, that wasn't my insistence. Again, I made a piece, I offered a piece of, that was cultural work. Mm-hmm. You know, I was surprised that it quite frankly was such a quote unquote hit that it had so many eyes on it. Our Kelly was 50 years old and had had a hit in a decade when the, um, when we aired uh, Surviving R. Kelly. So the fact that it had as many eyes on it to, was to me surprising. And the fact that a month later he was charged was surprising. What I had hoped to do was remind people, you know, there had already been all this work on the ground. I think about the Sasha Center and the, the women who were doing the Mute R. Kelly Detroit who are featured in Surviving R. Kelly um, protesting at Little Caesars at his concert with Ron Isley. I was thinking about the women who began Mute R. Kelly nationally. I was thinking about the parents of, you know, Joycelyn Savage and Azriel Clary who wanted their children back, you know, had already gone to the police and gotten nowhere with it. Um, And I was thinking about reminding people that when they went to Little Caesars to give R. Kelly this money, and folks don't make a lot of money from streaming, they make in this post-music industry landscape, they make their money from live shows. And that money was going directly towards a criminal enterprise that was handcuffing girls to radiators. Mm. And so I wanted folks to remember that. I asked you, I had no expectation around around a prosecution. I'm, I'm... actually really surprised that he was convicted, not because there wasn't the evidence, not because we don't all know he's guilty. And then, you know, what what Chris said at the end is something that I'm really used to hearing and I'm too old to hear it and, and to really talk about it, you know? And that is like, what about Woody Allen? I would like him to name four Woody Allen movies, you know? But, and maybe he can, no, no diss to you, Chris, you know what I'm saying? But he, Chris probably isn't a hedge fund manager or a hedge fund um, investor. Um, I know I'm not. And he probably knows Jeffrey Epstein's name. Mm. Um, I was someone who used to drive out to the main and uh, to this other theater further out to watch independent cinema. But most people know Harvey Weinstein's name. Most people know Jeffrey Epstein's name. Most people know Woody Allen's name because they have already been <laughs> exposed. Sure. I, I am not a Catholic. I know about the Catholic Church because there have been hundreds of articles, films, feature and documentary and charges. So this question of like, what about them? Isn't a valid one, quite frankly. The reason that Tarana Burke brought Geronda Pace, uh, one of the women featured in our documentary, who, by the way, R. Kelly cruised her while she was an 11th grader skipping school to support his trial in 08. Yeah. 
Wow. So this is a high school girl attending a super fan at the tr- courthouse, like, R. Kelly's innocent in 08. And he's like, yo, go get that girl's number. Th- that's how <laughs> out of control this man was. Yeah. He's had on trial for child pornography, picking up teenagers. But anyway, Geronda Pace, Geronda Burke took Geronda Pace down to Times Square when she when Me Too blew up and it and they were able to say Tarana is the one who actually started this. Then she was invited to the drop ball dropping at New Year's Eve. She brought Geronda Pace because nobody was talking about R. Kelly. I see a lot of po- folks in my community from Detroit, from neighborhoods where I came, black people that I know and love, talking about that somehow this is over indexing on black men. That's not true. The people that have mostly been targeted by Me Too are not Bill Cosby and R. Kelly. Those are two people. We're talking about NPR hosts. We're talking about heads of major uh, NPR producers. I think a host also. We're talking about heads of major um, corporations. We're talking about uh, all kinds of presidents, you know? All of these people are, are facing some kind of repercussion in this era of reckoning. And R. Kelly's is long overdue. So if the community wanted to hold R. Kelly responsible, we could have been done that because we all knew who and what he was for way too long. Yeah. But we just, you know, we kept on showing up at Little Caesars for his concerts, yeah. acting like it was all good. OK, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back. We're going to continue this conversation with uh, Dream Hampton uh, about R. Kelly and his conviction this week. Uh, we also want to continue to hear from you on the phones. What do you think of uh, this very famous uh, performer's conviction for racketeering and sex trafficking? What do you think of the potential sentence he faces? Uh, also, what do you think of this broader issue of predatory behavior by men on young women, not just in the African-American community, but in American culture. What are we to do with uh, the people who do that? And how do we better uh, support the victims? Uh, We want to hear from you if uh, you are someone who is a fan of R. Kelly, if you're somebody who is maybe uh, the opposite, cheering the fact that uh, he's been convicted and will go to prison. Uh, Let us know how you're processing all of this. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We're going to raise a little money, and then we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Right today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dream Hampton, filmmaker, activist, and writer. We're talking about R. Kelly, who was the subject of a documentary that uh, she was executive producer and showrunner for, Surviving R. Kelly, uh, which premiered on Lifetime back in January of 2019. We're talking about uh, R. Kelly's conviction this week on racketeering and sex trafficking charges, the likelihood that he will face a very stiff sentence in prison uh, for those uh, convictions. And we're talking about the broader issues here. This question of predatory behavior uh, uh, by men on underaged women uh, and 
When, what happens when it's famous men uh, who do that? We want to hear from you uh, about what you're thinking about R. Kelly and his circumstances, what it says about uh, our criminal justice system, but also what it says about our culture. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you in the program that way. Uh, I want to read a couple of Twitter comments before we get to the phones. Big Neo says, as music fans... Individuals can 100% separate what R. Kelly did from the music. Folks have no problem separating the American national anthem from the horrors that America has committed and still commits to this day. Same type of thing. Uh, a nameless uh, listener on Twitter says uh, R. Kelly is not being demonized. Uh, Megan on Twitter says what I believe in while I believe in restorative justice and criminal justice reform, R. Kelly has done nothing to be accountable for the sexual crimes he committed against girls and women. Let's not forget his victims, who should be the centerpiece of this discussion. And Candy on Twitter says, uh, I'm thinking about the village that it takes to support famous folks who abuse others. They really can't do it as long as they do without those who care and cover for them. Let's go to Kivra in Detroit. Kivra, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Hey. Thanks, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that I think that this is long overdue for R. Kelly. I think he's getting what's coming to him. And I think that so many more women and girls would have been saved if he had been put away. You know, when the tape came out in 2002, it, it's ridiculous that he's been able to get away with everything he's done for what seems like 30 years or more. It's mm-hmm. just crazy to me. So, Kiva, do you believe that a, a long and, uh, you know, maybe lifetime prison sentence is the right thing for, to happen to R. Kelly? Absolutely. I mean, those girls have a lifetime sentence to think about everything he did to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kiva, mm-hmm. I appreciate the call and, uh, and the comments. Uh, Dream, uh, we haven't talked much about that sentence, which I, I, by by my calculation, he he could very well spend the rest of his life in jail for these things. Um, it, it, that outcome seems just because of what he did. But of course, uh, there are questions about the, what creates somebody like R. Kelly, and uh, you know, mitigating circumstances and things like that. How are you processing the the likelihood of a really, really long jail sentence for him. I agree with the last caller, Mm -hmm. um, and she's right. We can locate that tape um, to 2002, but what happened at the end of 2000 was Jim DeRogatis began his reporting. And what he was reporting in the Chicago Tribune, um, along with two other colleagues, Mm -hmm. um, Mary, a black woman, I can't remember her last name, I'm so sorry, and Abner Palish, um, both of whom were featured in Surviving R. Kelly. What they were reporting in 2000 was that Tiffany Hawkins um, had come to the Chicago Police Department as a post-teenager and told them that in 1991, she was abused as a minor by R. Kelly. And they didn't take those charges seriously. Um, And so that is 30 years, um, Kiva, you know, in terms of the math you're doing. That's 30 years. 1991, when it was the first victim that we know of R. Kelly's, um, was in 1991. 
And think about that. Aaliyah could have been saved. She talked about all the girls that could have been saved because we really do have to shift our focus. And I love what Kiva just said about they have a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, They have lifetime sentences. None of the women that I interviewed for Surviving R. Kelly had ever seen a day of therapy. Mm. You know why? Because therapy takes resources. And so, (laughs) you know, there are reports of R. Kelly being broke right now. And I don't doubt that. You know, this is a man who made tens of millions of dollars, wrote hit songs for people like Celine Dion and Michael Jackson, incredibly talented songwriter, um, had been making hit records for decades. You know, he wasn't making them by the time I made Surviving R. Kelly, but he had for three decades. And he spent a lot of those resources on abusing girls. Mm-hmm. Because it, what he was doing took money. He had he had three and four women stashed up in one place. He had four or five up in the studio, three and four at the house in um, Atlanta, and all of these places were staffed by people who <laughs> enabled the abuse, um, who 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 actually committed the abuse, who listened to R. Kelly when he said that one she don't get to eat today, put a slop bucket in that one's room because she don't get to come out to use the bathroom. She's on punishment. Mm. These were teenagers and post-teenagers and some of them grown women and none of them deserved this abuse. Aaliyah, who met R. Kelly when she was 12, just like Sparkle's niece met R. Kelly when she was 12. And and we know that with both of them, by the time they're 14, at least he's abusing them. We don't, it could have been before then, but you know, Aaliyah didn't have to happen. If the Chicago police had listened to Tiffany Hawkins, if anyone in the community, and I don't, and this, and here we can take the police out of it. If any of the people who had been charged with locking those doors, with deciding, okay, we all about to eat tonight, you know, but this one's not. Mm. If any of those people had stepped in to protect these girls, then we wouldn't have to be where we are right now. Yeah. But the the question of R. Kelly himself, I mean, there is a there is a punitive imperative, right? He should be punished for what he did. But there is still this question of whether that's enough, whether that even gets justice for the women who you point out uh, need resources to be able to get the therapy that they need. And it doesn't really prevent the next R. Kelly, right? The next person yeah. who who's going to behave this way. You know who's been at the forefront of um, innovating uh, and organizing, innovating thought and organizing action around restorative justice and, abol- and um, abolishing prisons? Black women, Black feminists. Uh, the first time I heard um, a conversation about the criminal justice system that was framed in an a- that had an abolitionist framework was in the late 80s uh, when Kathy Cohen, Barbara Ransby, and Angela Davis and mm-hmm. Ruthie Gilmore were doing the work around critical resistance. So it's been Black women who've been leading that struggle. And if you want to join that, then please do. Miriam Kaba is at Prison Culture. Derricka Purnell just released um, a book on, ap- it comes out October 8th. 
um, on abolition. Like there is a lot of Detroit. Um, you know, I think of all the people that have come through. Miriam Kabu, who I just cited, was a keynote speaker at the um, Allied Media Conference in downtown Detroit, right at Wayne State. So like this work is being done. And if you want to join that work, then mm. please do. Mm. But don't all of a sudden, you know, have this... Um, this and, and I'm not saying that you have to be an activist or an even intellectual to have a criticism of the criminal justice system. I went up to visit one of my best friends when he was in Milan for 11 years, and I didn't need um, a politics hmm. or a politic to like know that where I was was an unjust place, no matter what crime he had committed, and that there wasn't going to be healing, you know? Um so these conversations about, and by the way, these are cultural conversations also. Yeah. Rape culture is a culture. I had 25-year-old men at my prom at Cas Tech in 1988. Mm. Now, if you're telling me that that stopped, and I know we didn't have proms last year, but if you're telling me in 2018 and 2019 that, there, that you'd never heard of that, that there was no such thing as older men up at your high school, then that's awesome. But what I suspect is that no, we still haven't, um, as a community, said, no, this is intolerable. I know that my grandmother might have got married at 15. And, you know, I know that this and whatever you think, you know, whatever Woody Allen is doing, what does that have to do with where I'm from, with the east side of Detroit? Because I don't live on the east side of Manhattan mm -hmm. with Woody Allen. I live in my community. The reason I'm not doing documentaries about Woody Allen and Harvey Weinstein, A, because those documentaries exist, and B, because I care about Geronda and Aaliyah and Lisa and Lizette. These are Black girls like me. So, and I'm never going to apologize for advocating for Black girls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Betty in Port Huron. Betty, Hello. what's on your mind? Hi, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the culture that still kind of glorifies this predatory behavior mm -hmm. um, and, you know, has throughout our society. Yes. You know, if you look at even the messages and things that go way back into the 70s, things like, you know, from the movie Grease, you know, did she put up a fight? These things are not harmless. And I feel like, you know, there's still such a burden on females to be the ones that are educated on how to prevent this. I'm a former teacher and I'm a mother of five daughters. And, and I'm so frustrated with the fact that, you know, women bear these burdens. And I talk to females my age and females my daughter's age, you know, ranging from 20 to 30, who have tried to come forward about men doing these things to them. And, you know, sexual harassment, rape, you name it. And, you know, they're demonized in the courts for bringing these things forward. Um, you know, and it's still the burden is on the female no matter what that we're doing and you know it's the the message is not out there yeah. that the, this is not normal we need to be educating our sons rather than our daughters wow you know we need from the time that young men you know start to grow up we need to be educating them sexual desire is a normal thing it shouldn't be demonized by religions it's a normal thing but there are there are cultural behaviors that have to be acceptable that come along with it sure. and teach them about consent and teach them, you know, what is and what isn't acceptable and yeah. what is and what isn't moral and what is and what does not 
hurt the other person. I'm tired of hearing predators say, even biological fathers who've had, who have molested their daughters, say, I didn't realize how much I was hurting her. Hmm. You know, all of these girls taking the stands in the Nasser case. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Betty, I, I really appreciate your call and yeah, uh, I appreciate your comments too. and and dream i think uh, it's worth pointing out I, and i'm making an assumption here but i think i'm right that that betty is not part of the african-american community this is someone well, yeah. in the white community talk, saying the same things right um, yeah when we talk about this as a cultural we we exist in america you know mm-hmm. you know so of course you know this is when i was Writing at the source at 19 years old, I wrote about uh, the St. John's, you know, the basketball team in this rape case. And and these were white players, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> I have like written on Twitter for what it's worth about people like Trump, about uh, I'm really excited, not excited, but I'm watching with bated breath the Jolene Maxwell mm-hmm. and, and being, you know, tried and in lieu of Jeffrey Epstein as an enabler, as someone as a part of his ecosystem, because that might be what we see if a trial goes forward in Northern Illinois with R. Kelly. But yes, it's a this is a broader culture. I, I've been saying I did not learn that women, you know, to quote Snoop Dogg, aren't aren't anything but you know mm-hmm. b words and hoes <laughs> and tricks. Mm-hmm. From I didn't learn that from hip hop. I learned that from the Book of Genesis. You know, we and and you and I have talked about this before. It gets all heady and I don't you know this. We can have a conversation about patriarchy Mm -hmm. um, because patriarchy is tied into this. This is about when you when you're grooming girls, um, which is the only reason you want someone really young is the reason that virgin culture is a thing. Um, It's about control. It's about obedience. It's about having someone. (laughs) to basically be your servant and your slave. And so, and that is a phenomenon that is not American. It's definitely not Black. It is global. Yes. And so, you know, we stand in solidarity when we, you know, when we call ourselves Black feminists with with feminists around the world, you know? Um, And and, and it's very different, you know, to be a Black feminist than it is to be a white feminist because I have an analysis around capitalism. I have one around white supremacy. And so I stand in solidarity with Afghan women organizing and self-advocating for themselves, not coming in on some heroes. But what I was doing with Surviving R. Kelly was about my own community. But the last caller, Betty, is right. You know, yes, this stuff happens. Todd Solon's a a filmmaker. You know, if you love Harvey Weinstein, if you know so much about Harvey Weinstein, you may know about an independent filmmaker named Todd Solon's Mm -hmm. who did Welcome to the Dollhouse, who was taking on this kind of terror and pathology in the suburbs, you know? Um, So, no, this isn't something that's unique to our community at all. And the people who've been targeted by Me Too recently over the past three or four years, I remember the New York Times put out a list of 100 men who've like been penalized in some way, whether it was charges or just losing their job by the Me Too movement. And two of them were black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's uh, take Elena before we have to. Uh, the Me Too movement. Um, Elena, what's on your name? Mm-hmm. Mine. Wow. Uh, again, three one. Elena, I need you to turn your radio down. <laughs> Are you there, Elena? Yeah. Okay. Can you turn the radio down? Elena. 
Hi. Hi. Yes. Thank you for having me on. Uh huh. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I just want to say, yeah, Betty have made an excellent point. I mean, there's so many points that have been made that are just um, so, so important. Um, I wanted to say, as a sexual abuse survivor, um, that it is this kind of thing is so, so etched into society, and it's something that we are just taught to just not talk about, especially survivors like you, you even, even within families, um, and it, it's something that transcends race. It transcends culture. It's it's like you know, like um, your eloquent guest said. It's so so global, and it's such a huge problem. And um, you know, talking about separating the art from the artist, mm. you know, it's so hard to do that because you know I'm also a film uh, lover. You know, I like grew up watching classic films, and this is something that's been going on for as long as Hollywood has been a thing. And and you know, seeing different things like even you know all these classic movie directors that were just known to be just tyrants. You know, mm-hmm. even if they weren't sexually abusive, they were just abusive in some right. And um, you know, it's so it's so hard to separate those things. Yeah, Elena, I appreciate the call, and I want to get the, back to Dream because we're running out of time. Of but uh, this this question of the artist and the art, I think, is made more difficult when the art reflects the abuse as well. And in R. Kelly's oh, case, yeah. that is the thing that I think makes this really uh, not yeah. a very close call, Dream. I mean, his art mm-hmm. was about this. That's absolutely. right. He. Yeah, go ahead, Doreen. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. He um, he called himself the Pied Piper. He was writing songs for Aaliyah, like Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. Um, but I failed this test. There, there are so many artists um, who have been abusive, you know, that who, I, I, I don't ever remember boycotting Rick James. So here it is. If you can't... Um, Stop listening to R. Kelly if you can't stop streaming him because you're not going to be going to his concerts anytime soon. Hello. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can't stop streaming his music, then let that music, you know, go to a fund for his survivors because therapy is not free. You know, Mm -hmm. stop acting like restitution, financial restitution is some gold digging. It's not. It requires money to heal. And and that might likely happen because that's what follows criminal convictions or civil ones. Um, and, and, and there are other trials yet to be had yeah. that will include, again, some of the, the ecosystem that he was a part of. Um, I didn't start mute R. Kelly. I didn't ask people to, um, boycott and, and sanction R. Kelly, but I know that that divestment is important. I know that like his currency wasn't just like the money that black folks gave him. R. Kelly was a black artist. He yeah. was a he's saying genre music. He's saying R and B at two crossover hits. I believe I can fly, mm-hmm. and for some weird reason, ignition. Mm-hmm. We were the ones giving R. Kelly money, and more than that, we were giving him our love, which was a currency. Yeah. And so, and I'm not saying that you need to stop giving him your love, but if you're going to be writing R. Kelly, I think about, and I know we don't have time, but I think about Mike Tyson when he was in jail, and how Minister Farrakhan was like proclaiming his innocence, and Spike Lee drove to Indiana to visit him. Right? I don't think that in that time Mike was in jail, he ever had a chance to think about questions like consent. Right. And so if you're going to be writing R. Kelly letters, send him letters that define, you know, that that point him to healing and to, and and books that you've read as you've dealt with survivors in your own family. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, Dream Hampton, it is, of course, always really great to talk with you. Of course. And While I was on the air, I donated $200 uh, to WGT. We saw that. <laughs> and thank you, of course, for <laughs> no that problem. donation during the fall fundraiser. <laughs> it's, great to, it's great to talk with you. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. We'll talk soon. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with State House Democratic Leader Donna Lazinski. Plus, I'll talk with Leonard Miller, the co-author of a really good book titled Racing While Black, an African-American stock car team that made its mark on NASCAR. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. We'll talk again tomorrow.